Welcome to Speaking for the Trees. Uh, This is a podcast where two environmental professionals rant about the state of our deteriorating ecosystem and future. But we'll try to keep it light, and we'll try to include a kernel of good news in every episode. I'm Ellie, and that's Lauren. Hello. Hey. And, uh, yeah, we're going to talk to you about environmental stuff, but first, we're going to talk to you about beverages and candles, because we're white women, and that's what interests us. What are you listening? <laughs> nope, not listening. What are you smelling and also drinking? That was also bad. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> well, I have a candle that is burning. Hang on, let me let me twist this. Oh, just kidding. I ripped off the sticker. I so I can't tell you an actual name or a brand. Uh, um, you're doing really bad. This is bad. Just kidding. <laughs> Go ahead. You describe it to us. Hang on. There's a sticker on the bottom. Just be careful. <laughs> Doing some detective work over here. Ah, uh, still no brand. Um, but it's my a brand. Spiced, <laughs> it's a spiced gingerbread scented candle. Aw, oh, sick. Yeah, and it's really cute because there's like a little wood top that's and got a little cutout of a gingerbread man shape. Oh, that's seasonal, except for the fact that it's mid-January. <laughs> okay. While we record this. Well, I got I got this as like a Christmas present, and then I immediately left my apartment for Christmas to go listen, like, listen up to see my parents. So I haven't had a chance to burn it. Your candle makes way more sense than mine. You will see in a minute. But what are you drinking first? I am drinking right now. <laughs> this is way even less seasonal. Uh, I'm drinking drinking Cape Line Sparkling Cocktails Hard Strawberry Lemonade. <laughs> that's <laughs> such a it's such like a college trash drink i love it they were on really good sale at kroger <laughs> and i like lemonade oh, fuck it so. up kroger dude hell yeah <laughs> i love kroger <laughs> there's no krogers up here it's so sad just kidding all grocery stores are the same anyway how is it how would you rate it on a scale from one to ten i mean it's only 4.5 percent alcohol so like I wish it were more, and it's very carbonated, and that oh, might that's... be a problem moving on into the episode. But it does, it has yeah, nice it's flavor. Fine. So you're you're pretty soon into the episode. Anyway, up oh, Caliban is visiting. If my recording suddenly breaks off, that's why. Um, all right, so my candle is even less seasonal, or basically, as I told you before, it's cold as shit here. Uh, Hello. Okay, there's going to be a, a tail on my keyboard. All right. <laughs> um, so I am, because it's cold, I want to pretend like it's warm in my apartment. So I am I am burning an Aloha Kiwi passion fruit candle. <laughs> uh, it sounds pretend. so good, though. Yeah, it's, like, it's from Bath and Body Works. It smells very good. And it's probably going to be annoying to sleep in because I'm recording this in my bedroom. And it's just going to smell like... <laughs> <laughs> Aloha nonsense, but that's fine. Um, and the wine I am drinking, I brought the bottle over so I could read it to you, is the Meze Corona Pinot Grigio made in Trentino. Don't know where that is. I assume it's Italy. It is a Pinot Grigio. It is a 2018 vintage. It is a 12.5% by volume ABV, and let me just tell you that it is not good. I have already had a lot of it. Not not today, but like in general, and it's not a good wine. <laughs> so cheers. 
<laughs> I will be sipping on this very mediocre ten dollarist wine I could find at Trader Joe's the other day. I should start going to Trader Joe's for wine. Well, I never so think far about so it. bad. Um, <laughs> uh, I also have a <sighs> mason jar of water for when I need to speak more. All right. Oh, I have I have my backup hard cider. <laughs> That's valid. I also have an entire <laughs> bottle of wine, so you know. Which one I drink will depend on my mood. So let's move on to the rest of the episode. So what are we talking about today, Lauren? So this is part one of our continuing open love letter to wetlands. So topics to Hell yeah. <laughs> topics today, since it's an introductory web episode. Um, is what the hell is a wetland and why do we care about them? Uh, water quality benefits of wetlands. And then we move on to our segments, uh, Endangered Species of the Week and an Environmental Victory. Aw, sweet. Can't wait. And I don't have to because I'm up first. going to be telling you what the hell a wetland is and why you should care. Oh, my dear sweet listener, you are about to learn so many new words. Um, I will do my best to make this as ADHD friendly as possible and try to use as many layman's terms as possible. It doesn't get too confusing. Um, So let's move on. Let's go. So yeah, hell yeah, content. So the first thing I suppose I have to address is what in the gosh dang is a wetland? So wetlands.org says that they're what happens whenever water meets land. That means the sides of rivers, flooded forests, rice fields, the sides of lakes, marshes, mangroves, peatlands, deltas, floodplains, and even coral reefs are all considered wetlands. Uh, Basically, wherever water is directly up against land, it creates a very specific set of conditions that allow for a wetland to form. Wetlands Initiative goes on to say that in a wetland, the water determines all or most of the area's biogeochemistry. Now, I just threw a big fucking word at you, so Lana and I break it down. Bio means life, so the water influences what life can live there. How much water can the roots of a plant handle? What kind of bugs like to skitter on about it? And so on. That's what the bio part means. Then we get to geo, which means rocks and soil. So the water influences what types of rocks and soil are found there. How fast is the water moving? That'll determine what size of the particles will be set down on our hypothetical wetland. And finally, chemistry of biogeochemistry means chemistry. What's in the water and how does that affect the life and geology of the area? So all in all, how the water affects the biology, geology, and chemistry of a particular area will determine what kind of wetland you have. That was probably very boring for you if you're a la- if you're just a person who isn't super into wetlands. So let's break this down into three easily digestible parameters that tell us what a wetland is. These are all conditions that are defined by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, these conditions, which I have either quoted or paraphrased, are condition number one: the area supports predominantly hydrophytes. So that's another one of our new words we're learning. Uh, I suppose you want to know what a hydrophyte is. <laughs> I, I sure do. I don't know a you lot are, about... Don't, uh, don't pretend like you I don't, don't know. know what a hydrophyte is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a hydrophyte is a plant that lives entirely in water, like a water lily or lotus, 
or a hydrophyte is a plant that lives on soil whose oxygen content is affected by a ton of water displacing it. So the water displaces the oxygen molecules. And I will talk more about that in a bit. Condition number two. The soil the plants live in is mostly made of soil that can't get rid of its water and as a result is low in oxygen. This means that the soil is hydric, a.k.a. the water causes it to have anaerobic conditions. Now that just means it has low oxygen. There's not much oxygen in there. Basically, I'm trying to say is the soil, not much oxygen in there. So our first condition was that the area has plenty of plants that really like water. And our second condition is that the soil has really low oxygen because the water is there. Now we're going to go condition number three. The soil is saturated with water or covered by shallow water at some time during the plant's growing season every year with some regularity. That's really it. Those are the three things that make a wetland. It's got to have lots of plants that like water. The soil's got to be full of water and therefore not full of oxygen. And the soil has to either be saturated with or covered with water once a year at least. Okay, so just a lot. And all of this is because of water, basically. Is, I guess. Well, it is called wetland. a wetland, so it, it, it does make <laughs> sense. <laughs> if you think about it, it's all in the name. Um, <laughs> so like I said before, whenever there is water butting up against some land, you have a wetland. So... As you can imagine, there are a ton of different types of wetlands. So let's go on a tour, shall we? Ooh, you ex- yes. Are you excited for the tour? Are you? Do you uh, have your life vest? It's important. You're, you're <laughs> portable. <laughs> I brought so my passport gonna... with me. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. You got your um, personal flotation device, um, like a flare gun in case we get lost. I have my gonna, phone. It's going to be real involved. You got your phone. I got a Is candle. <laughs> <laughs> one candle. Okay. Survivalist at the core. So we're going to start on the coast. You ready? Close your eyes. Okay. Are they closed? Yes. Right. Imagine you're on a lovely sandy beach. The wind is warm and has the smell of seaweed and salt, and you hear the crashing of waves. You turn your back to the waves and you walk inland, up past that annoyingly loose and hot sand that's really hard to walk on, and you find yourself looking at some water and a bunch of grass. The smell is a little sulfury now, and the ground is muddy and has little fiddler crabs running around and posturing at each other. You've walked into a tidal marsh, our first wetland. You can tell it's a marsh because there is water in little channels and pools, and you can tell it's flooded most of the time by surface water. You can also see that most of the plant life is some form of grass. And since we're by the sea, the water smells brackish and kind of nasty as it interacts with those hydric soils we mentioned earlier. And oh hey, over there, if we look among the grasses, you can see a heron. It's probably looking for some mussels to eat. All right, we're going to move further inland. Ellie, no, no, I'm not ready to leave. You painted such a beautiful (laughs) word picture. Oh, but it's just begun. Don't worry. (laughs) Someone, oh my God, look at that. Someone pulled up and a fancy futuristic hovercraft is going to take us on a a nice little tour. Wait. All right, I'm I'm out of the magic. I'm out of the magic. No, come on. (laughs) Okay, what I'm imagining is in Jimmy Neutron, his stupid little circular hovercraft. <laughs> okay, I'm back. I'm back. I understand where we are now. I see it. So it's pulled up next to you. You walk right in. Um, and holy shit, does this hover bar have a fully stocked bar? Hell yeah. I'm going to get a strawberry daiquiri, but no dairy, please. Uh, that's right. I'm also here, and I'm wearing the coolest outfit. It's probably flannel, and it's purple. Anyway. <laughs> So we're going to ride along in our fancy hovercraft of science and sip our fruity beverages. 
and we're going to head further inland and further up as the land's slope increases. Land's slope increases. We notice that there seems to be some kind of stream input to this marsh. The smell of the water is fresh here, though it doesn't smell great still. These dang hydric soils and the decaying organisms just make it smell so bad. Mmm, rot. Mmm, delicious. Nutrients. Now that we're away from that brackish water, though, we start to notice some other changes. The stream sluggishly meanders its way through the landscape with lots of small, muddy islands. When we look at the plants, we see some cattails, some bladderworts, which are just some water-dwelling carnivorous plants with weird, fat, yellow flowers on them. Uh, We see some duckweed atop the surface of the water. We step down into the water with our waders on and hear a squelch. Uh, the Gross. water is murky, and the uh, well, uh, painting a picture. <laughs> the, the water is murky, and the bottom is soft and squishy. When we look at the little islands, we see snails, dragonflies, and mosquitoes, and a couple of your typical in- inland freshwater snakes. Did I bother to Google what those were? No. Moving on. <laughs> oh, lame. I love snakes. Uh, I think um, uh, cottonmouth. I think is native to in- inland marshes. I think I saw that. Anyway, don't get bit. A red-winged blackbird calls to us for my cattail. Some turtles bask on a log. It's idyllic as fuck. I have that written in my copy. I was supposed to say it. <laughs> did you know that right. red-winged blackbirds are super territorial? I did not know that. I know their call is really cute, and I really like it. And that's all I, I think they're just them. territorial of their nests. Because, like, when I was, like, <laughs> this fun story about me. When I was really young, <laughs> Quick I uh, walked by a red-winged blackbird's nest, and it chased me up the street. And I have a scar on my elbow from where I tripped and fell because I was wearing flip-flops, and I just busted my fucking elbow. <laughs> Oh, no. I thought you were going to say the red-winged blackbird gave you a scar. I was like, damn, Lord, what the hell? How has that not come up before? Oh, no. I ran away from the red-winged blackbird and then got a scar. Like a I hero. tripped. <laughs> so. <laughs> Such a, listeners, they're so small. This is hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> just kind of punched it. That's my red-winged blackbird it. story. And then I told, I told my friend's dad and he called it a red-winged bad bird. <laughs> Out of the fiction I've created, I'm gone. It's gone. It's just a white space now. <laughs> All right, we're back in. We're back in. So we hop back in our hovercraft of science trademark and tell the computer that sounds suspiciously like Jeff Goldblum to take us on to something other than a marsh. The craft zips further inland along the marsh, which slowly narrows into a river. The river lazily curls its way through the landscape, and suddenly we bank a sharp left and head towards a tree stand. As we near it, we see that the ground is dipping lower and lower, and that kind of dead sulfury smell is coming back. We're in the trees now, and you dip your hand into the water that floods the area. It's pretty stinky. Hey, look out. There might be a snake in here. You pull your hand back sheepishly. Goldbot sensually informs us that this is only a swamp during the wet season. Water breaks out of the river when it floods and inundates this area. He offers us another beverage. This time they're moonshot cocktails to go along with the hick hick aesthetic I've created. We sip what is basically acetone and listen to the frogs ribbiting and peeping. Goldbot helpfully translates the froggies into, Hey baby, I'm over here. You want to lay like 300 eggs? We tell Goldbot that we get the idea, thanks. To make up for making us feel uncomfortable, a robot arm comes out of the side of the hovercraft, gently dips into the water, and comes up 
with a salamander on it, we squeal because salamanders are adorable and anyone who thinks they're gross can catch these hands. I point to a fern and start gushing about how ferns are the first vascular plant to evolve and how interesting that is. You look at me blankly. Now it is my turn to feel sheepish. We let the salamander go and tell Goldbot to continue our tour. He zooms us out of the tree stand and way the fuck inland. He informs us that the area we're about to visit is a low-lying area carved out by glaciers in the last ice age. We sit down on a small grassy knoll and survey the scene. Where there were previous wetlands were completely full of water, this one seems to be just saturated, aka the ground is swishy, squishy and wet, but not underwater. The area around us has no trees and is generally pretty grassy, but we notice some other cool plants as well. We also notice that we're not standing directly on mud, but on moss that squelches as we step on it. I grab your hand way too excitedly and drag you over to a tiny plant with red barbs and little dewdrops on it. It's a sundew, a carnivorous plant that uses insects as a nutritional supplement since the soil doesn't have enough nutrients in it. The dewdrops are actually really sticky, so any bug that lands on it gets digested. Ooh, and over there, I pull you further along and almost yank your arm out of its socket, is a pitcher plant. Same, same deal, but uh, this one... The bug wanders into the pitcher looking for food, or mates or whatever, and the hairs in the pitcher point downwards, preventing the bug from crawling back out. Thoroughly disgusted by my weird enthusiasm for carnivorous plants, you ask Goldblatt to take you away from this crazy person. He obliges, and my rantings about evolution and carnivory fade to nothing as you make your escape, leaving me behind in a stinky bog surrounded by carnivorous plants and moss where I belong. Hosier is there. And that's my segment. <laughs> okay, so, um, not to... Not to spoil the magic of anything, but do you have, like, uh, general, like, geographic areas that we would see these? I mean, obviously, like, coasts. I understand where a coast is, but, like, the kind, like, especially because you listed quite a bit of, like, specific uh, flora. Right, sorry, I got distracted by the flora. Yes, so (laughs) swamps can occur anywhere where you have um, specific... Uh, trees that can stand the amount of flooding that takes place in a swamp and also is depressed in like the area is a low enough elevation to be flooded by water. Does that make sense? So uh, the the type of swamp I specifically described is called a back swamp or an oxbow swamp, which happens um, around a meandering river where okay. sometimes the river floods and then floods an area and that becomes a swamp briefly. But because it's flooded re- frequently enough, it is a swamp. Um, okay. And then a bog usually occurs somewhere where glaciation happens. So like um, an example is actually there is a bog in New Hampshire um, where a, a glacier scooped out a bunch of, basically scooped out a bunch of earth, creating a depression, and then uh, water fills that depression and you get a bog. So basically wetlands in general tend to form in depressed areas where water can pool, right? Okay. So I, yeah. that's the general, um, like theme with wetlands i just picked um like a natural progression that of four four that i am personally pretty familiar with and could describe pretty well with the sensory because i wanted it to be like a sensory thing so i picked four i knew pretty decently and also i picked bogged because they definitely have carnivorous plants in them and i wanted there to be a funny thing where i run around and see sundew plants and freak out (laughs) all right Okay, my next question is, like, I'm assuming that these are all, like, the, these are all, like, wetlands and, like, the particular, like, your very specific descriptions were all, like, kind of, like, North American. Yes, um, so my experience. Things found, with, like, in North America. 
my experience with wetlands is going to be informed by my living situation. And I have lived on the east coast of North America my entire life. So what I described for the saltwater marshes is informed by my visits to South Carolina and Florida. My visits to a swamp are, I think, more actually New York. And my <laughs> visits to bogs are just kind of everywhere, but specifically Chincoteague Island in Virginia. <laughs> so, like, okay. that's that's my, my the sensory part of me describing stuff um, was from my personal experience. Uh, I did mm -hmm. import some plants, like a sundew and a pitcher plant are actually native to the tropics. They're not native to New Hampshire. You wouldn't find those specific plants here. Um, yeah, I was but, a little confused, but then I was like, I don't know much about plants, so maybe they do grow here. <laughs> well, I mean, plants do grow here, but, and there are carnivorous plants that grow everywhere. It's just a matter of picking the right, you know, specific species, and I was too lazy to go that far into detail. I also already had six different sources for this section, <laughs> and I was doing okay. my copy at work, so, you know. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, it was very nice. I just, like, had some questions about... No, uh, please. Like, I guess, details. <laughs> Context, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So you're going to tell us about water quality now, right? I sure am. I am okay. excited. So I think that Ellie has done pretty well in introducing wetlands as a concept. I feel educated anyway. And excited. I love wetlands. So I'll be talking about some of the benefits of wetlands, specifically in regard to water quality. Uh, really quickly, can we describe what water quality is? Because I feel like we both throw that phrase around, but a regular person might not actually know what it means. Sure. Uh, well, water quality, basically, um, I mean, I think a lot of it's like fairly easy to understand. It's like when you have water, there's chemicals in that water. And sometimes yes. there's particulates in that water. So like things like uh, suspended sand particles. Um, I mean, it would be silt to be suspended but so anything that in is in the water is going to affect the quality would would you say yeah. that's accurate anything that's in the water that is not water basically can be considered <laughs> uh contaminant um depend like depending like obviously like we have like fluoride in our tap water and that is like it helps us but like if we were to just be pouring water out into the environment we would probably want to get rid of the fluoride first we don't want to just like spit that out into the environment yeah, so water quality is looking at all the things that can be in water and are in water and saying, is this what we want in it? How can we clean it up, etc. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's a pretty succinct way of putting it. Excellent. Okay. I think we all understand that when there's rain, that water touches things. Yes, that <laughs> oh, line shit, did make it me. in there. <laughs> you've lost me. I'm so confused. <laughs> I sent that to Ellie completely out of context. <laughs> Like, and honestly, Lori, in context, it's still just as ridiculous, but I couldn't think of a better way to say it. Um, so water touches things, and those things are obviously not always clean. Uh, so, I see. So like a raindrop can fall on the top of my head, but it could also fall on a piece of manure. Yes. Yeah. That's the general idea. So, Raindrops falling on my head. Sorry, continue. Water can pick up all kinds of things from both the atmosphere and any of the surfaces it runs across. So, like, what kinds of things are we talking about? Well, Ellie brought up manure. Gross. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so, 
I think what kinds of things? I think it's simplest to like maybe imagine a scenario. So, oh, are we gonna do some more mind scenarios? I'll close yeah, my mind's eyes. not mind's not very fun though. So like, oh, imagine a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> it's like you're. It's like I'm there. Wait, hold um, on. This is New England, so I see a truck, and that truck is parked in two spaces at the same time, and I'm very angry about it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so you're in that parking lot. So if you were to lay down and then lick the asphalt pavement of a parking lot, what would be <laughs> yeah. on it? Okay. Um, okay. Well, since it's New England, there would be a ton of um, like salt and like ice proofing liquids. There would also be cigarette mm-hmm. butts, um, and. <laughs> I don't know, just like brand, what uh, Bud Light? There'd be Bud Light for sure, and dog. Okay. Those are those are my those are my. I, I, did I get any of the answers right? Do I, I get? Well, any? I mean, I mean, those <laughs> things are all things that can be on pavement for sure. Um, I was I was thinking more like unavoidable things when I was writing my my copy, which was like automotive fluids. Yes. Uh, dust, like that's gonna be on there, um, but. I mean, like, let's think beyond the parking lot now, right? Maybe the parking lot's surrounded by a very nice lawn. So now we have fertilizers, pesticides. Gross. Or definitely organic material, mulch, sticks, dirt. So we're, when we're talking about pollutants that are in, like, the runoff from this parking lot, so, like, it rains, we have the runoff from the rain, um, that's going to pick up all that stuff and anything that the rain picked up on its way down too if there's a high pollen count smog that's in the that's in there too the dragon from the hobbit is in this parking lot i'm sorry <laughs> i had to ian's in the other room reference. and i'm really channeling his uh his essence here you haven't even watched lord of the rings fake <laughs> fan first of all i have watched lord of the rings i just didn't like it <laughs> she said smog <laughs> and then I mentioned you and then uh, so just so you know Lauren uh, Ian heard his name went over heard me say I don't like Lord of the Rings and made an evil eye at me I see and is I now see. glaring at me in general Well, I read Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit but I didn't read the Silmarillion because it was kind of boring uh, fake fan couldn't get my hands on it also it was hard to find quick anecdote when I was in chemistry in high school um, we we had a teacher who knew she was going to be laid off the next year. She was de-staffed, so she didn't teach us any chemistry, and instead had us just watch two. T- what's it called? The two towers, King's Towers. I don't know the second one. It's the two um, towers. Yeah. Ah, first try. Um, the two towers, but like the behind the scenes, like how they did the green screens and how they rolled the chain mail and that stuff, and then we just watched oh, the two so towers, cool. and that was my chemistry class. Like. 10th grade. The Two Towers is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Specifically <laughs> that one. Anyway. I like the third one because it has ghosts and that's the only reason. There's go. Oh my god, but the Ents? The Ents are in the Two Towers. Oh, I also wait, I thought the Ents were- Whatever. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so we have our imaginary parking lot and all the water that's passed over it. So where does that water go? Well, a lot of it's going to storm sewer systems, which in most cities in the United States, those join up with our sanitary sewers into what we call combined sewers. Oh, we're going to have to have a whole episode on that because we both have some feelings about yeah, it. Yeah, because they combined sewers run 
all of that water to the wastewater treatment plants. And this is a it completely fucking sucks as a way of doing infrastructure for reasons that I can't get into here. It would take way too long. But yes. I'll just say this. Guess what happens when these systems overflow? Ooh, anyway, ooh, I got this one. I have I have a I have an anecdote for this. <laughs> I work in a building that is near a uh, combined sewer flow output to the river. And whenever it rains, it smells like shit and all the ducks come up and eat all the shit coming out of the combined sewer <laughs> overflow. And it's so nasty. Okay, continue. How am I supposed to continue? <laughs> well, first you gag and then you throw up and then you keep How reading your copy. How am I supposed to keep going? <laughs> I don't want to talk anymore. I am sorry. All right. Fine. Think about the wetlands okay. and how they're going to fix it. Okay. So, but that's not what's happening to all of the water. Okay. Those parking lots will generally have, like, those little grass islands in them, right? Yes. And fun fact, those are called bioswales. Ooh. So, some of that runoff is uh, infiltrating, which is just, uh, it's uh, the science word for saying it's, like, just kind of percolating through the dirt. It's going down into the dirt. Got it. Yes. Um, and it's filtering through that soil to the nearest surface water. And, in fact, that's the, the exact reason that those biospills get installed. Uh, when the water passes through them, we can at least be pretty sure that the particulates are being filtered out by passing through what is essentially a sand pack filter. Except it's just the ground. Yeah, yeah. A naturally occurring one, but yeah. essentially. We're, ta- we're taking advantage of our surroundings. Yeah. And even some of those chemicals that we talked about, particularly fertilizer, will, depending on the makeup of the soil and the particular bacteria communities living in it, uh, undergo reactions with existing compounds in the soil. And this has a fancy name uh, for the fertilizer, and it's called denitrification. Explaining that process is out of our scope here, but what we need to understand about this is that this reaction removes the nitrates in the fertilizer that were going to go into the surface water. And that's a good thing. Let me make sure I got this. So the water goes into the into the ground. Mm-hmm. It interacts with something and bacteria takes the nitrogen out. and chemicals. Yeah. Okay. So the nitrogen that was in the water gets taken out by the bacteria in the soil. Yes. Okay. Got it. Continue. This isn't like a very fast process, so like its effectiveness is really dependent on like what's what's there in the ground. So right. what does all that have to do with wetlands? Well, wetlands are particularly well equipped to help remove these particulates, nutrients, other miscellaneous pollutants that we've talked about in our parking lot example. The bulk of the nutrient removal is done by the plant life, and a lot of the rest of it can be just adsorbed onto the sediment. And that just means it gloms on like glue yeah. onto the, the, the soil grains. Yeah. Soil grains gobbles it up. Nom, nom, nom. <laughs> There's alcohol in my blood. Can you tell? <laughs> the deposition of organic material and, the chem- and chemical pr- precipitation can also occur, but those are less significant. Lord, you're going to have to explain that whole sentence in regular person talk, my dude. Okay, so... I mean, like, remember the pollen that was in the rain? Yes. It makes me sneeze. Yes, that can be deposited, um, like, just, like, from gravity. Right. Like, so if, as it if, if it's standing down, water, it can just, yeah, it can just kind it of... It falls out of the water. Okay. 
And then the other yeah. thing you said was... Chemical precipitation. So it's like when you have uh, a chemical reaction, and it's like you have two things that are, in chemistry terms, they're aqueous, they're dissolved into the water, and they right. react with each other, and then they form like a part, like a particulate that can actually fall down like out of the water. Like an actual solid thing falls to the bottom of the, of the beaker. Right. So the water... Exactly. Okay, so we're saying that the water, through various chemical reactions and through physical means, is dropping solid material. Yeah. Basically. I mean, got it. that's not most of it. Most of it is the plant life and just being sorbed onto the sediments, but right. those are also happening. Yes. So, okay. how, so how much can wetlands do? Like, how significant is there, for back, lack of a better term, work? Uh, well, naturally, it depends a lot on a lot of factors, the big ones being what's in the wetland and what the influent runoff contains, even down to like what kinds of soil particles are in that. So it's a lot harder to get the really tiny, teensy tiny particles of clay to come out than it is to get like sand. <laughs> okay, so it depends on like who lives, what plants live in the wetland and then what type of soil there is. Yeah, and, and yeah, and the bacteria communities. Can't forget about those. Oh, yes. Um, they kind of but, are in sync with both of those things. So, Yeah. Yes. But as just one example, wetlands that were built 20 years ago near the, I'm going to butcher this name because I don't live there, but the Embaras River um were revisited by a research project at the University of Illinois and those and they showed a 62% removal of nitrates. That is so high. Wow. Yeah, I know it's a lot. And um another study that I found while looking at this examined like 93 articles covering 203 wetlands and found that Wow, damn, good for them. <laughs> I know. It seemed like a lot of work. <laughs> That's so much work. Um and it found like uh, total nitrogen removal rates averaging about 37%. Um, and that's and that's all forms of nitrogen. Okay, so in that first example, water's going through, it's loaded, let's say, with 100 pieces of nitrogen. That's not science, but you know. And then it yeah. goes through the wetland, and at the end, only 40 pieces of nitrogen come out. So that's really good. It's yeah. really filtering the crap out of it. That second one's not as good, but you know, it's going to vary. Yeah, But... I mean, another thing to be keep in mind is that that 62% removal rate is all the nitrate form of nitrogen. And right. this is more chemistry than I really want to get into here, I think. But like, yeah. not all forms of nitrogen are going to be as reactive. Yeah, so different chemicals are going to be removed in different ways and at different efficiencies. Yeah. Yeah, nitrates are like, nitrates tend to be... Like, they tend to be easier for things like wetlands to remove. Um, um, there's just, like, more... Like, nitrates can get... Um, eat, they get used by the plants. Uh, that's what go undergoes denitrification within uh, bacterial communities. Um, but total nitrogen is slightly different. I know just enough about chemistry to know... Like, to understand and explain this, but, like, I don't know enough about chemistry to, like, say, like, what spe specific other reactions would be happening. Um, You're no chemicalologist. But, yeah. But, There's so, yeah, that. that's just, just, just something to keep in mind is, like, that first study is, like, referencing specifically nitrates. And the next study was looking at total nitrogen. Um, okay, okay. 
So that's why. So it's all forms of nitrogen. Yeah. And then uh, they also found that like the average removal rates that they found from those articles for uh, total phosphorus, which is also something that we're concerned with, um, Mm -hmm. the removal rates averaged about 46%. Um, Pretty good. Yeah. Those are really significant numbers. And these are just wetlands that exist in the wild. We didn't engineer yeah. them. They just are happening all by themselves. Well, the, sec- the, second, uh, the second article, it included both constructed wetlands and uh, naturally occurring wetlands. That sure. first one was, I, th- I, I don't want to say what the first one. I'd have to check for sure. That's all right. I, my, my point is that we have these resources that are cleaning the water for us, free of charge, basically. All they ask is that we not touch them. (laughs) Yeah. But, yeah, but, like, I guess the the point here is just that both naturally occurring and the constructive wetlands are, they're doing a lot of work for us, which is, because these are, I know it's not, like, it doesn't seem like most of it. So, like, to us humans, we, like, want these, like, super high efficiency percentages, but, like, any amount is helping. Well, yeah, because then you can take that water and put it through one of our waste treatment plants and it, it, we have to do a lot less work to clean it. Yeah. Some of these do have like these really high percentages. Like some places have these really high percentages that they find, like really good efficiency. It just, it so totally depends on your inputs and the system itself that it's like between the averages, it's like, you know. <laughs> so anyway, sources are posted as always. So of course. You can read all all about these studies yourself as well. Um, it's riveting, I assure you. <laughs> and you meant and you actually mentioned uh, constructed wetlands. So yes. this is like a fun fact that I found interesting over the course of my research, which is that wetlands are so efficient at nutrient removal that there's been a lot of research into unit process wetlands at municipal wastewater treatment plants. That is so cool. Yeah, so they're actually using these wetlands. There's research into it. And like at some facilities, they actually have them in place um, where these wetlands are actually doing the nutrient removal process for wastewater treatment plants. That is, is so really cool. So cool. like, so you got your sediment tank. It's a big circular tank. The, the, it mm-hmm. slows the water down. Stuff's falling out. And then the water just goes into a wetland. And that's just part of the process. That's so cool. Yeah. Because normally when I think, when I think of a, wait, wa- sorry, a water treatment plant, I think of this big industrial, like, it takes up several acres. It's a whole bunch of machinery. But the idea that this yeah. machinery is also just has a wetland plopped in the middle of it is very charming yeah. to me. Yeah, I mean... You know, the feasibility of this, it depends on your area. This takes up a lot of space, but it's really cool that we can even do this. Like, it's cool that wetlands are so good at their jobs. Not only the engineered wetlands, but the natural ones as well. Like, they're both, like, we can engineer wetlands by planting a bunch of stuff and having it work. That's so cool. Yeah. It's just like it's it's really cool. And I it's really exciting to me, (laughs) a big nerd. That, like, we can actually just, like, th- that, they're s- that they're so good at doing what they do that we can actually, that this is, like, a, like, it's, like, a it's feasible thing that we can do. Like, yeah. that's so cool. Anyway. Well, you know, what's interesting is, I don't know if you're going to talk about this, but, so we're talking about water quality here. But when it t- comes mm-hmm. to water quality, when water is moving through our si- systems and stuff... Um, one of the ways we deal with flood water is we have engineered wetlands and they slow the water down and they let 
the water kind of sit for a bit before going to various surface surface water bodies. So it's we use wetlands in all sorts of our processes uh, behind the scenes with water resources, and it's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get a chance to like really like flesh like anything about like water quantity out. Like oh uh, yeah, no, we're talking about them them chemicals like using wetlands as like detention and retention ponds. Like because like that's another application of them. Is just like that's. I love that stuff. Spreading so out. Cool. It's like, if, if you think about water entering a water system, like, if you have things just flowing from, just imagine a completely paved surface, like, and then you have a drain in the middle of it. Like, what you're going to have is, like, just a huge spiking peak. Yes. All the water's going to shove through at the same time, and it's going to be a problem. It's going to put a strain on the system. Yeah, when you have things like wetlands, they can kind of hold on to some of that water and they just sort of spread the peak out so that it's like the system has to deal with like it has a low it lowers the peak. Sort of like in Black Friday when they have all the Best Buy employees keeping uh, the uh, population of the store below a certain amount and then they let people in. It's kind of like that. The wet the Best Buy employees are the wetlands. This was an analogy I made up. On the spot, can you tell? <sighs> anyway, I'm not done talking about unit process wetlands. Oh, please continue. So. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just love wetlands. <laughs> so these are also called constructed wetlands as the natural ones would certainly not be up to the demands of a wastewater treatment plant. It's It would be really hard for them to keep up. And also we don't want to be like, it's, it's really hard to maintain these things. Like you have to be really, really careful about it all. To, like keep like pH right and you have to keep all this stuff right like there's so many things to balance but if you have a constructed wetland then like you're only adding to the total amount of wetland area like so who cares <laughs> <laughs> like it's only helping and because these don't like they there's no like real energy costs associated or operational costs because they just sort of sit out there like they're actually a pretty attractive prospect in like certain in certain areas of the country. And actually here in the US, we have the ooh, I'm going to not say this right, but I think it's the Arcata Wastewater Treatment Plant and Wildlife Sanctuary in California, which is massive. It handles an average volume of 2.3 million US gallons of sewage per day. That's a lot. Yeah, it's and it's like really big. I forget how many acres it is it's massive though and it's like a really popular bird watching destination actually because it's like a sense. wildlife sanctuary too that's it's so cool that these things can go hand in hand when you're like cleaning water you're also creating these beautiful refuges for birds and ah oh, it's so i love wetlands <laughs> i'm just gonna say that every 10 seconds yeah, this is just like it's really interesting to me because it it is also a functioning wastewater treatment plant which it's a city, it was going to need one anyway, but they also managed to make it into, like, this, like, also a sanctuary, where it's, like, doing things that make this, I don't know, that just make, like, the ecological system around the city better. Yeah, and plus it provides a certain amount of mental health support for the people who live there, who can visit, because nature is really yeah. important for mental health. That sounds new agey, but I promise there's studies. Maybe we can look into that too. Anyway, so continue. this all sounds pretty dang good. Wetlands can yes. help us with both the volume and the contaminants in the runoff. So very good. Unfortunately, this isn't like a this isn't like a cure all like band aid put a band aid on it situation because doing this can put quite a bit of strain on the wetland receiving the runoff. 
Yeah, and, I imagine yeah. so. Yeah, and as a result, the wetlands that are, quote-unquote, like, doing the most when it comes to water quality, the ones in developed areas, are generally not very pretty. They can't maintain a ton of animal and plant species, because really only the most hardy ones can deal with the influxes right. of runoff and less with with less than ideal content, chemical and otherwise. And these are wetlands that no one really thinks about or even looks at. Maybe they only can maintain native grasses or like sometimes some cattails. Right. So this is why we can't just like we can't just engineer wetlands and get rid of all the other wetlands. Yeah. So it's like the wetlands that are pristine, um, the ones that are untouched. Like we can't just like dump all of our stormwater into them and be like, oh, it'll be fine. It'll just handle it. Because, like, no. that's a lot of external stress on the wetland that wouldn't have otherwise been there. Right. Because those wetlands have evolved with specific conditions, and if you suddenly upset them, then a lot of changes are going to happen, and that's not necessarily a good thing. Yeah, exactly. Plants be picky, y'all. And yeah. fish and turtles. And when whatever. we're looking at developing land that is on that a wetland is on, provided that it's not protected by the Clean Water Act, we have to somehow de- determine how valuable that wetland is. And depending on that value, you may or may not be allowed to build on the land, or you can have like certain restrictions placed on the building, etc. It's all pretty complicated, and it's pretty much always evaluated on an individual basis. Yeah. But the way that wetlands are currently evaluated, it really undervalues the wetlands that aren't as appealing to us humans. Not as aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. So most states have like a three-pronged approach, which is avoid imp- like when it comes when it comes to like building on and filling in wetlands, it's avoid, minimize the impacts, and then compensate for unavoidable impacts. Ah, kind of like when you cut down a tree to plant another tree kind of a situation? Yeah. It's, like the wetland equivalent of it? Yeah, it sounds pretty good at, like in practice, but it ends up being like really messy. Right. Because like, we have this tendency to undervalue wetlands. It often ends up being cheaper for contractors to just build over existing wetlands and then construct new ones elsewhere on the property. Right, and it's not going to have the same value as a already established ancient wetland that's pristine did, because the yeah. all the things evolved together. They they created a community together, and then when you create a wetland, it's not nearly as evolved. I'm using the word evolved kind of loosely, but anyway. Yeah, but. I mean, but even wetlands that are like that are in urban areas that like are receiving like these are crazy like polluted runoff like even ones that are getting those like those are they've adapted to handle like that particular runoff and Mm -hmm. so a lot of the times like when we try to rebuild and replace these systems like we don't it's like it's all very it's so complicated that it's right we often do it without understanding why those wetlands developed the particular habitats that were present in the first place we can't so even we can't even begin to rip replicate what mother nature did like we're just it's it's you're you're are you have a ecosystem that's been growing itself together with 
you know, millennia, and then you have some guys in construction hats uh, scratching their heads, putting some cattails in and going, that's probably good. Like, <laughs> yeah, like we can we can make our assumptions and we can like even like with a lot of study get pretty close. But like, realistically, that's not something that a lot of study is like generally not economical for construction sites. That's not right. generally something that ends up being implemented. It's really it, or it's really hard to justify it. It's really hard to blame any one developer. Right. Because like they're just trying to do what's best for their company. And, like, pay their workers yeah. and all that stuff. So, like, I get that they, you know, can't do their best in that regard. But it's also like, come on, man. Yeah. Do better. Because, like, I think that, like, we, or, like, us, like, me and Ellie, like, we tend to place a lot more value on, like, the avoidance uh, part right. of that three-pronged approach. And I'm going to talk like, a maybe, lot about that in our next segment. Then maybe, like, uh, um, g- like, government officials who are more worried about, like, economics and public opinion yeah it's like yeah so it's like for us like it's it feels like there should be more of an emphasis placed on avoiding building on the wetlands in the first place whereas like right in a lot of cases the way that it actually ends up happening is it's just sort of like oh like avoid it where you can but like we stand to make money so uh, just build over it and then build something else. Put something else somewhere else. Like, yep. So put it's, something else somewhere else. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, it's pretty accurate. Yeah, and the finished wetlands are pretty much always more visually attractive than the ones that they replaced, but they they're like inaccurate. They're they're inaccurate reproductions, and they can't really match the functionality that we've lost and that's extremely sad because like there's formative femininity here if i really felt like it (laughs) it's really (laughs) sad i know i i was thinking about this as i wrote that (laughs) or as i was writing all of this really because it's like we have these ugly wetlands that nobody really cares about the ones that can survive These are, yeah. like, because like, it's always the ugly wetlands that can actually survive in developed areas. And, like, they end up being so undervalued because of it because we just don't, like, they're not visually appealing. That's also, ugly is such a subjective term because it's, to me, I could walk into any wetland, find a plant I like, and go, this wetland is awesome. It has X plant. But because a reg, I keep saying, like, a regular person, but, like, the average person's going to walk into a wetland and say, hmm, this stinks and there's mosquitoes. Rip it out. You know what I mean? So, like, that's kind yeah. of... The, you know, the reason people are, don't think they're pretty. But there's so many beautiful I mean, flowering plants, so I don't understand. Anyway. <laughs> well, well, some wetlands literally are just, like, little tufts grass. of grasses yeah. with some mud in between. Like, that is some wetlands. That's like yeah, marshes. But those are the ones that people don't like thinking about. Like, they still have a function, and they still have purpose. But, like, no one really likes to look at those. No one really mm. likes to or, like, thinks about them all that much because they're just some mud and grass. I'm thinking about you, Marsh. I love you, Marsh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but they end up being so... But just because they don't appeal to us, they end up being really undervalued, even though they... Those are really the wetlands that tend to exist in the places that we need them the most because they're... They exist there for a reason. Yeah, and, and and because of that, they're the easiest for us to lose. 
and that just it's also interesting sucks. that the same people who have the, the rhetoric of like uh the gays can't do x because the bible told me so are also like let's rip out this wetland even though god made it here <laughs> like it's really just a politics is all about convenience sometimes i mean democrats do be like that too democrats so. do be like that though <laughs> anyway it's all about convenience so, unfortunately so didn't mean to be a total downer there at the end but it's okay I my, just... my segment is adorable so I have a lot of very strong feelings about this particular topic. So What? Us having strong feelings about environmental policy? What? <laughs> it's more likely than you think. <laughs> strong feelings about my environmental policy? Who spilled all these opinions all over my podcast? <laughs> How dare you have political opinions in an environmental education podcast? <laughs> Shall we move on to our endangered species of the yes. excited about my endangered species of the week it is so cute this week's endangered species is the blandings turtle aka the smiling turtle there is a picture in the document lauren and there will be a picture um on our website for the listeners he's so he's kissable he's so cute (laughs) he's just a little boy uh (laughs) i just want to kiss his head he's so cute uh, he is the, um, oh god, the M, Emidoidea blanding guy. First try. Nailed it. Why are you Moving bothering on. with the Latin? No, it's, it's in case you want to Google it. <laughs> you know, you could definitely get the spelling from that. Yes. So I'm going to describe this for people who maybe um, either can't see or just don't feel like going on the website. I got you. So the Blanding's turtle. This little friend has a seven to nine inch long body with a relatively smooth dark shell and a top of a head and a top and a bright mustard yellow underbelly, including its chin. The contrast between the top of the head and its lower jaw makes it look like it's smiling. It has big grayish brown eyes that are looking at me as if I it knows I just took a cookie before they were cooled off. And it approves of my actions like that of a father who caught their child in the act of doing the very thing they were about to do. tell me i'm wrong gosh (laughs) its shell has been compared to an army helmet and has little yellow white speckles on it so it's very cute and very small it's about the size of your face just so everyone knows he has like a little three mouth it's so cute like like just like a little kitty mouth where it's like got like the little oh my god i have known about this turtle for five days but i would already die for it it's fine (laughs) I love, I love this. Oh my it's god! It's so fucking. So, sad stuff. Why are we talking about this critter in our endangered species segment? Well, it's endangered. The usual destruction of habitat, the pet trade, yada yada yada, is what's causing it to be endangered. But what makes this one interesting is the discrepancy between the female and male populations of this turtle. In some places, the ratio is one to one, as you'd kind of expect. That is, for every female turtle, there's a male turtle. Um, but in other places, the population is highly female biased. So there's like a million female turtles. That's not an actual number, but you get the idea. Another difficulty is that the females aren't mature enough to lay eggs until they're anywhere between 14 and 20 years old. 
this makes juvenile mortality a big issue. So, like, cars running turtles over is a big contributor to the turtle's ability to mate. Do you happen to know how long they live? Um, I think I saw numbers uh, in the 80s. Oh, holy shit. Yeah. No, turtles, pretty much all turtles live forever. It's incredible. I mean, I know, I, I, I don't know. I guess I didn't know that. I knew that, like, tortoises did, but, like, that's yeah, different. Yeah, so turtles have pretty long lifespans. Um, but I don't, I don't know off the top of my head the lifespan of this guy, but it's pretty long. Definitely, it's probably less than 100 years, but with, but it can get up there. Anywho, let's get out of the sad stuff and into the fun stuff. So this little boy loves to live in wetlands, ponds, marshes, freshwater shorelines, creeks, and wet prairies. And uh, Lauren, you'll love this. They're native to your homeland, the Great Lakes region, as well as Ontario, <gasps> Canada. So you could feasibly go out and find them if you wanted to. Ah! Oh my uh, god! They are also native to small isolation... Whoops, small isolated patches of New England, including my part of New Hampshire. So I also could feasibly go try to find one. So oh God, they live so let's many talk places. about that. Yeah, if you want to go find one, let's talk about how you do that. So if you're going to want to find one of these smiley little boys, you're going to want to go out on a day that's sunny or partially cloudy between the hours of 8 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. So basically when the sun's up, uh, this is when they tend to bask in the sunlight. This would be in its non-hibernation time, obviously, so be sure to look between late March to September. Be sure to check the sides of ditches, stumps and logs, piles of driftwood, cattail debris, and sedge clumps. And sedges are just like pieces of, they're like those little clumps of grass that occur in little domes. Oh. I have actually, um, one of my sources is a range map that I will include on the website so you can see if it's in your area. Uh, another important thing to keep in mind this is not a hold on new segment new bullet point so another thing to keep in mind about these guys is that they are travelers one female turtle in new hampshire actually nested two entire miles away from where she normally hangs out um one one male in the study i'm referencing actually had a territory that spanned 84 entire acres holy shit yeah so this highlights the importance of conserving large swaths of land unbroken by roadways and development when it comes to con conservation efforts. A lot of animals have big fucking honking pieces of land that they like to travel around on. And if you cut it up with roads, it's more likely that you're going to kill some of them and endanger the population. So speaking of conservation efforts, here's some cute stuff. When they first hatch, they're vulnerable to bullfrogs, garter snakes, blue jays, and chipmunks. I realize the way I said that, it's like the fact that they're vulnerable makes it cute. This is not what makes it cute. That is actually sad. <laughs> <laughs> the part that makes it cute I, I is... mean, I do like thinking about garter snakes, so... They're so small! They're so... not endangered, but, like, I yeah. like them a lot. <laughs> so even chipmunks pose a threat to these babies because they're really small and they're really soft-shelled. So, as a part of the conservation effort, this is where it gets cute, the turtles are rounded up in, nesting ha uh, in their nesting stage, so right when they hatch, and are handed out to schools and conservation programs. So basically, oh. kids are tasked with like feeding and making sure the animals are warm so that they grow big and strong, and they keep them in captivity for about nine months so that their shells can harden, so that they're less vulnerable to these predators, and then they're released to the wild while they have stronger shells. Oh, that's really cute. So you're probably wondering, wait, they took them out of the nesting stage. This means that they had to know where the nests were. Ellie, how did they know where the nests were? Now, this is where I went down a rabbit hole. And I, <laughs> I'm 
are you ready for this incredible rabbit hole that I found myself in? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so you, I can't imagine how deep this could go. It doesn't go too deep. It doesn't go too deep. So you may be okay. asking yourself, self, how did the scientists find the nest so they can whisk the babies away? The answer, dear listeners, is turtle radio stations. Oh, my God. So, each mama turtle gets a number. In the radio interview I'm referencing, they talk about turtle number 2028. I personally find this very um, dehumanizing or deturtleizing. I would give them a stupid name, such as Susan. Uh, <laughs> moving on. So, each turtle gets a Sorry number. Sorry to all the Susans out there. My mom's name is Susan. <laughs> Anyway, so um, each turtle gets its own radio station, and each turtle gets an antenna straight up glued to their shell so that the scientists can use the radio to find that specific turtle when they're out nesting. The scientists can also ask the locals, hey, have you seen this specific turtle (laughs) with an antenna on it? And the locals will actually help out. So the scientists point their magic radio wand around, tune to the specific turtle's frequency, and listen for it. Each turtle has its own radio station. You can't make this stuff up. Oh my god. Sometimes the turtle is nesting in an area near a house, so the signal will bounce off the walls and make it harder to track, and that's where the public helps out. So I will now end on my favorite turtle tracking quote by Jasana Palm, a bio-aid with New Hampshire's non-gain and endangered wildlife program. Get ready, it's very funny. (laughs) Quote, at one point I took a step and didn't make it to the next hummock and fell in. When I looked up, there was a turtle right in front of me. This happened twice. Unquote. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the endangered species segment. I hope you liked it. (laughs) Okay. That was lovely. Okay. I love this turtle so much. Susan! Okay, so, Lord, we had an idea for an ending. <laughs> and it was really dumb. <laughs> Shit, this is so dumb. <laughs> I really like it, though. <laughs> I want to be very clear. It's stupid and I love it. Okay. Thanks for hanging out with me, Ellie, and our best friend, Earth. Uh, so, so that's our outro, huh? That's what we're going with? Uh, we'll do it better next time. Hey, thanks for listening to Speaking for the Trees. Feel free to follow our social media accounts. We are at Trees Speaking for both Instagram and Twitter. If you have any topic ideas or corrections, you can go ahead and email those to forthetrees.pod at gmail.com. Our logo is by Tyler C. Hurst. You can find him at at Tyler C. Hurst on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme song is Porch Swing Days Faster by Kevin McLeod. Okay, love you, bye.